Turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses uh, 15 to 20. 2 Corinthians 1, 15 to 20. Today is going to be a little bit different from uh, what you're used to hearing from me. Uh, this is uh, where we're taking verse 20, and I'll explain uh, why and how in a few minutes, but we're taking verse 20, the promises of God, and we're going on a little side trail uh, into the promises of God and the covenants of God. So this morning and this afternoon, we'll be talking about the covenants. Uh, you have the outline there in your bulletin and the list of all the covenants that we're going to be going through. We're going to get through Noah this morning. And uh, this afternoon will be Abraham up through the New Covenant. So we will be going through the covenants, uh, jumping off from verse 20. Also, this might be more of what one person called a lermon. It's a lecture and a sermon mixed together. Uh, So not quite uh, a sermon uh, as we go through the covenants. But let's read now God's word, 2 Corinthians 1, 15 to 20. Paul says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Our God, we thank you uh, that you have given us your word and that you have given us your promises and that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit whose mission is to bring glory to Christ. That is why he has been sent. And so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit now as we look in your word. Help us to learn your word and to understand it. And may our hearts be drawn to Christ that we might love him and worship him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if uh, some of you have ever been talking to someone about the church that you go to. They say, what's it like? What kind of church is it? You say, it's a Baptist church. And they say, oh, well, what, what is, what's different about it? And you say, it's a Reformed Baptist church. And you get a funny look. What is that? You ever had that question? What is a Reformed Baptist church? And I wonder if you've tried to answer that question or how you would answer the question. There are a lot of things that we could say. In some ways, our church is like every other Christian church when it comes to our beliefs about God and about Christ. So there's nothing different when it comes to that. 
We could think about the Reformed part, and you might say that we believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. We believe especially that God is sovereign over salvation, and so uh, man does not have the ability to attribute any, contribute anything to his salvation. It's all of God. Uh, you could talk maybe about Reformed worship and what that's like. Uh, you could talk about the Baptist part and how we baptize only believers. There might be a few more things that are specific to, to us. You know, there's, there's Reformed and then there's Baptist, but then there's Reformed Baptist and you put them together and it's a different thing. We could say that uh, Reformed Baptists are Sabbatarian. We believe in the Lord's Day. We believe in the Christian Sabbath. But there's one more thing that I would say to that answer. Reformed Baptists are covenantal. We are covenantal. We believe in the covenants of God. And there are some churches, they are Reformed, and they may be Baptist, but they're not Reformed Baptists because they're not covenantal. They don't agree with what we believe, what our confession says about the covenants. But the covenants are really the skeleton for all of our theology. Uh, when we talk about the Sabbath, that's related to our view of the covenants. When you talk about worship, when you talk about baptism, it all goes back to the skeleton of what you believe about the covenants. And I would say that the covenants really are the skeleton for the Bible. If, if you have just a bunch of muscle but no skeleton, then you're just a blob. You're a jellyfish. And some people read the Bible as if it's a blob of stories. There's some story about Samson, and that's kind of interesting. And I like the stories about Elijah, and, and I like Peter in the New Testament. And they're all interesting stories, and I read them, and I try to get some uh, interesting inspiration from those stories. But I have no clue what Samson has to do with Elijah and what Elijah has to do with Peter. How do I put all these interesting stories together? Well, there's a skeleton that's running through the Bible, holding the Bible together, and that is the covenants that God has made. And so I hope that we will see that skeleton and that, I, that it will help you to understand the Bible better. Now, we are going to be uh, looking at the covenants, but we're not going to be able to go in depth, really, to every single one. Can't read all the verses, can't answer all the questions. This is just going to be an appetizer, and hopefully it is appetizing, and you will want to learn more. But what are some ways that uh, understanding the covenants might help us? Well, the big one, I kind of referenced this a little bit, is uh, how we understand the law. Do we apply the laws of the Old Testament to Christians today? Do we have to obey the Ten Commandments? You know, there are people out there who say we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. We just obey what the New Testament says. Just obey the law of Christ. But on the other hand, what, what about their people? There are people here, uh, not here, but there are people now who are wanting to bring back the civil law of Moses. And they're saying that even in America, we need to bring back the law of Moses and, and institute it so we execute witches and all these kinds of things. 
So you have two extremes. Get rid of all the law or bring back all the law. What's our view? What's the Bible say about it? Another one is uh, the view of baptism. Uh, we don't just, uh, you don't just baptize someone because, well, you look at the New Testament and, and everybody there is an adult and they're a believer. And there you go. Presbyterians or people who baptize infants, they, they know that when you see in the New Testament, they know that everyone is a, a new believer in that context. That's not why they baptize infants. They baptize infants because of a view they have of the covenants. So how do we believe in the covenants and yet uh, only baptize believers, those who profess faith? Another issue is your view of Israel. Uh, Should we be helping to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Should uh, we all move back to the land of Israel? Should we be supporting the the nation or the land of Israel today? Are, are they, uh, they have a special plan God has for them still today? Those are all questions answered by how you understand the covenants. But here's the most important one, I think. Uh, your assurance of salvation and your knowledge of God's grace to you uh, will be greatly helped if you understand the covenants. You can't look at yourself. You can't look in your heart or in your life and say, well, I know that God's going to save me. I know that God loves me because of all these things that I do. Uh, As the Puritans say, there's a prayer in the Valley of Vision. He says, we need to repent of our repentance. If If I look at my repentance, all I see is how pathetic it is i need to repent of my repentance we don't have enough tears we don't shed enough tears to be sorry enough for our sins so if your assurance oh i know how you know you're saved or how you know god loves you is because you look inside of yourself well i think you'll be very disappointed you're not sorry enough but praise god that your salvation and the grace of god doesn't depend on how sorry you are Or how much you repent. But it's dependent upon a covenant promise that God has made to his people. And so hopefully as you understand this great promise that God has made. And how they all find their yes in Jesus Christ. It will help you praise God for his grace towards you. And you can rest in his grace. So as we start looking let's look at verse 20 again in 2 Corinthians 1. Remember what Paul is trying to say. Uh, He is trying to defend himself with the Corinthians uh, who have doubted his integrity and his honesty because he said he would visit them and he didn't. And so he's defending himself as a man who tells the truth, a man who uh, means what he says. And so in his integrity, he says he wanted to tell the truth and he uses as a reason about why he needs to be trustworthy, the trustworthiness of God and God's word. Notice the word for in verse 19. So my word has not been yes and no because, verse 19, because the Son of God, his word is not yes and no. His word is always yes. So Paul's credibility is important because it talks, uh, it depends, or it uh, 
brings light to the credibility of the gospel. And so he's talking about the credibility of the gospel, the credibility of God's word. And now he's expanding on that in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God has made promises in the Old Testament and God has kept his promises and he's kept them through Jesus Christ. Now, what does Paul mean here when he talks about these promises of God? Usually when we think of the promises, we think of something like Lamentations 3, where it says God's mercies are new every morning. That's a promise. Or you think of Isaiah 40, which says that he will give you strength and you will rise up like on wings of eagles. That's a promise. That's not the kind of promise that Paul is talking about, even though it is true that all those promises find their yes in Christ. But he's using promise in a technical sense, in a very specific sense, to talk about the covenant. We kind of use this language even in English. When we talk about marriage as a covenant, it's a covenant because a couple will make promises to each other. But those are solemn, official promises, right? You're not married to someone because you say, I promise to take you to Disney World one day. That's not the kind of promise that you're making. No, you're promising, uh, I will be with you sickness and in health and all these things. And so that's what Paul is saying here. The promises of God are not just generic, random things like uh, my mercies are new every morning, but a specific, solemn oath that God has made covenants that he's made. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 13 talks about these when he says that the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. So God had made covenants of promise in the Old Testament that now the Gentiles can come into. So that's why We are not just going to talk about all the promises of God in the Old Testament, but we're going to talk about the covenants that God has made. So what is a covenant? Well, it is an oath, a solemn oath that uh, two people make. One person makes the oath with another person. Usually it's a superior making a promise to someone who is inferior Because this person needs something, and so the superior, like a king, he's going to make an oath. He'll he'll make an oath to protect them or to give them something. Uh, Sometimes it's, I will give this to you with conditions if you obey me, if you do this for me. Sometimes it's just, I'm going to give this to you. Uh, Usually the covenants are made with a group of people, but the group has a head, a representative We call this a federal head. You guys know what the word federal means. The federal government makes decisions for the whole nation. And so the government can decide to go to war. As far as I know, every state doesn't get together to vote on whether to go to war. The federal government makes those decisions. And the whole group is affected by what the federal head does for the group and so we're going to see that in the old testament and then a covenant has usually signs 
or signs to show that you have entered into the covenant and that you are remaining in the covenant. So we're going to see those two. Well, the first covenant that we find uh, in the Bible is what we call the covenant of redemption. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this at all. But the covenant of redemption was made between the Father and the Son. And the, the Father decided that he was going to save his people. And so the Son made an agreement with him that the Son of God would pay the price for the people. You see one reference to this in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that we have the hope of eternal life, which a God who never lies promised before the ages began. So who did God make that promise to before the ages began? It wasn't to us, because we weren't alive. God made a promise to his son. That if his son were to meet the conditions of obedience and suffering and death, that God would accept that sacrifice. He would receive those people and he would save them. That's the eternal covenant of redemption. But now it's going to get played out as God creates the world and as things play out in history. So we're going to start with the covenant of works. Uh, this is actually not a covenant of promise. It's not a covenant of grace, but it's the backdrop, the background for everything that we see played out throughout the Bible. We call it the covenant of works. God made a covenant with the human race, and Adam was the federal head. Adam was the representative. So Adam's actions are going to affect the whole group. We see this in uh, the Confession. I have uh, chapter 7 of the Confession printed in the bulletin so that you don't think I'm crazy with all this stuff that I'm saying, uh, but that it's what we believe. Uh, I'm going to read paragraph 1. It says, Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. So it says here that there's a great distance between the creatures, humans, and God. God is so holy that even a perfect Adam cannot attain to that level of God and God's glory. And so he can't earn anything with God. If Adam had just continued to live a perfect life, he would have just done exactly what he was supposed to do. He wouldn't have been earning anything with God. He would have been doing his duty. Now, the confession quotes Luke 17, verse 10, uh, which says, Jesus is saying, uh, that when you've done all, just when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Luke 17, 10. So if you do everything that you've been commanded to do, what have you done? 
your duty. You get a special prize? No. Right? It's like if you have raised children. Uh, children want to get paid for doing basic chores in the house. You pay me for cleaning my room? And you say, well, does mom get paid for cooking dinner? Does dad get paid for mowing the lawn? No. These are just basic duties that need to be done. You don't get special payments and prizes. You've done your duty. Okay, thanks. And the Bible is saying that that's the position that Adam was in. He was just an unworthy servant required to live a life of perfection. And so there he was in the Garden of Eden, Eden plugging along, living his life. He had commands of God. He had the commands to uh, subdue the earth. Uh, He uh, knew that he was to be fruitful and multiply. He had the essence of the Ten Commandments, right? Adam knew that it was wrong to murder. He had the Sabbath command because he had the Ten Commandments and he had the example of God. And so Adam was there keeping the Sabbath and we don't know how long that time period was, but, but Adam was doing his duty. You get no special prizes for doing your duty, Adam. But, as the confession says, God voluntarily wanted to enter into a relationship with Adam. He wanted to have a special covenant relationship with them. And so he created this covenant framework. So what he did was he uh, essentially put Adam on this kind of probation period. We use the word probation uh, to talk about criminals. Criminals are uh, let out of prison and then they get time to, to live in the world. But it's a probation because if they have bad behavior, they get sent back to prison. And so... Uh, Adam was in this time period of under probation being examined by God where if he were to fail, then he breaks the covenant. But if he were to keep the covenant, then he gets a special reward. Okay, so, so normally Adam gets no special reward. He's just doing his duty. But God wants to enter into this covenant of works and it's called the covenant of works because Adam would have to earn this special reward. This is from the confession, chapter 19, which is not in your bulletin, but I will read it. It says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart. So that's like the Ten Commandments. And a particular precept, a specific command of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here's the covenant. Do not eat from this tree, by which he bound him in all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Okay? So here's your probation test. Don't eat from that one tree. And then it says, he promised life, upon the fulfilling of it and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. Now that's the key. He promised him life if he would pass the probation 
test. Now, it seems to me that that's the only logical explanation of why God would make the tree of life. Why else would it be there? It would be there because that was the reward for Adam. Adam, after this probation time, if you pass the test and don't eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, then you get to eat from the tree of life and live forever and have this relationship with me forever. So it was like a sacrament. It's like the Lord's Supper. You get access to it if, you, if you're in the covenants. And Adam had to earn his way into this covenant. So that's the covenant of works. Now, some of you, maybe a lot of you, are thinking, okay, Drew, you've uh, read a lot of the confession, but you're not really talking about the Bible. Where does the Bible say that? Well, there's Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, which says that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, Israel broke the covenant. So if Israel broke a covenant... They were like Adam. What did Adam do? Adam broke a covenant. And if there was a covenant, there has to be punishments and there has to be a reward. So Adam broke the covenant. There's also Romans 5, which talks about how Adam uh, brought sin into the world and how he's a picture of Christ and how Christ and Adam are parallel to each other. But Romans 5, verse 12 says that in Adam... We all sinned. How did we all sin? We actually sinned. Not because we're descended from Adam, but because he is the federal head. His actions represent you. And so you, uh, if, if, if your nation goes to war, you're part of that nation. You're affected. If Adam sins, you sinned. He is your federal head. In Adam, all sin. And if we put Adam as a parallel to Christ, like it does in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Christ came to make a new covenant. And Christ earns by his obedience a reward of righteousness. And so those who belong to Christ get that reward. Well, if Paul is saying that Adam is a parallel to Christ, well, doesn't that imply then that Adam had the same opportunity? He could have earned his eternal life, earned the right to the tree of life, but he broke it, and that's why we need Christ, the head of a new covenant. Well, the next question then as we wrap up the covenant of works is, what does it really matter? Does it really matter that we have to believe this or understand this? Well, it matters because it tells us how bad things really are. You and I are really, really bad. Because we sinned in Adam. Adam was our head. I'm not just affected by Adam. I don't just get the consequences of Adam's sin, which is death. I don't just get the influence of Adam as his sin now is 
passed on and perpetuated in original sin. Those things are all true. We have original sin. Things are so bad, though, that I don't just get the effects of Adam. I did the exact same thing that Adam did at that tree. I am guilty. From the moment that I'm conceived in my mother's womb, all of us are guilty. We're not just dead, and we're not just affected with the sinful nature. We're already guilty. We've already broken the covenant. We're already rebels against God. From the moment that we, uh, we, we begin to exist. Because Adam was in a covenant, and he broke it. He represented us. There's no way that if you believe that, you possibly think that you can save yourself. What could you possibly do to contribute any little thing to your salvation if you are already guilty from the moment you start existence? That's why it matters to believe in the covenant of works. But now we move on to the covenant of grace. God could have left us in our misery. Uh, He could have just condemned Adam, punished him, and condemned everyone else for as long as he wanted the world to continue existing. But God decided in his mercy and his grace that he was going to then rescue people who were covenant breakers. So God decided to make a different covenant now. A covenant that doesn't depend on your obedience and your earning it, but that depends upon the grace of God alone. So, chapter 7 of the Confession, paragraph 2, says that since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. And on their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. So the rest of the Bible, the whole spine now going throughout the Bible is that, first of all, everyone is a covenant breaker. But now God is playing out this new covenant of grace that is going to be revealed throughout the Bible. Let me read paragraph 3. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. So that last sentence is saying that No person can earn the life that Adam could have earned because now 
We're all under that curse of Adam. So God is now playing out in history, and it starts with the promise to the woman. So let's look at Genesis 3.15. So the first promise of the covenant of grace is made... To, to Eve. God here is talking to the serpent and giving him the curse in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So as a result of the curse, there is uh, enmity, people are enemies between a serpent which represents Satan and the woman which represents Eve and between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring Eve's offspring are humans, all of us are descended from Eve the serpent's offspring are not snakes, not baby snakes, uh, although it's probably true that most people hate snakes, but that's not the point. The offspring of the serpent are the spiritual offspring. Jesus talks about this in John eight forty four. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Talking to the Pharisees. They have a father. They have a spiritual father, the devil. Everyone who is an unbeliever is an offspring of the serpent. And so there's a war between the world and the and the church, God's people, and the serpent's offspring. And so it says then, uh, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice it changes to a uh, singular pronoun, he. So it's not talking about the, all the offspring that are going to come from Eve, but a he. A one offspring who would come from Eve. He will bruise the head of the serpent. The word bruise here uh, is not like when you bump something and get a bruise, but it's the word for blow. And so the male one offspring from Eve is going to give a blow to the head of the serpent. You get a blow to the head, you die. So this is a mortal blow. And the serpent will bruise, give a blow to that male offspring. So this is the first promise of the covenant of grace. One man would come from the family of Eve who would defeat the serpent. He would kill the serpent. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And we see how... The promise of God finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 3, the end of the chapter, we have the genealogy of Jesus. <clears throat> Matthew uh, has the genealogy of Jesus also. He goes back to Abraham. But notice that Luke, in verse 38 takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. He says the son of Adam 
the Son of God. So he's trying to tell us and make the point that Jesus is the offspring of Adam and Eve. Matthew also starts his book with the genealogy. But Luke puts it at the end of chapter 3. Why does he do that? Well, because the first verse of chapter 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Luke puts the offspring, uh, the the genealogy, at the end of chapter 3 and goes backwards to Adam so that right after we read that Jesus is son of Adam, son of God, the very next thing we're going to read is that Jesus goes to have a battle with the devil in the wilderness. This is Jesus' first event in his ministry. That's how he starts his ministry, is by duking it out with the devil in the desert. Jesus is the offspring of Eve, whose mission is to come and defeat the devil. And so over these next three years, that's what Jesus is doing. Through his miracles, his casting out demons, he is binding the strong man of the devil. And we know the end of the story is that ultimately, as Satan enters into Judas and tries to get Judas to give a blow to Jesus by having him nailed to the cross, it's by being nailed to the cross that Jesus is going to crush the serpent's head. Because the power that Satan had was death. And Jesus defeats death by dying on the cross, taking the punishment for sin, and rising from the dead. And so Luke is trying to tell us that Jesus is the yes to the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. Well, the last covenant we're going to look at this morning is the one with Noah. So turn back to Genesis now in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 18. I heard someone uh, talking about uh, this and how Eve, as she was uh, getting pregnant and having children, she must have thought, is this the one? Is this the one who is coming to defeat this serpent, to get rid of all this evil? She found out it wasn't going to be Cain. Found out it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth. And so the, the line of Eve keeps going on and on. But what we find in those chapters, chapters 4 and 5 and 6 of Genesis, is that the serpent's offspring is being fruitful and multiplying. Wickedness is filling the earth. And so God has to make another covenant, a covenant with Noah. And so he says in verse 18, to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And you know, he tells them to bring in the animals. He's establishing a covenant. This is the first time that we see the word covenant in the Bible. 
And uh, he doesn't use the word for cutting a covenant, which is the normal word for when you make a covenant. He uses the word establish. He's establishing something that's already been put in place, which is the promise that he made to Eve. So he's continuing the covenant of grace. He's establishing the covenant of grace by now making a covenant with Noah so that the world will not be destroyed. Now, why does God make a covenant with Noah? Well, because everybody at this point deserves to be wiped out. Everyone deserves to die. And the, the offspring of Eve to crush the serpent cannot come if God wipes everybody out. So he has to choose somebody. He chooses Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah. And through Noah, he promises to preserve the earth so that one day the Messiah would come. And then in chapter 9, after the flood happens and the waters go down, God gives the sign for the covenant in chapter 9, verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So what is the sign? Well, ESV got it right. It says bow. And we know it's a rainbow. But Moses, when he wrote Genesis, he used the word bow. And the people of Moses' day would know what a bow is. It's that thing those Egyptians had trying to kill them. A bow is a weapon of war. That's the word that God uses and Moses writes down as the sign. So this rainbow in the sky represents a bow, a weapon of war. And notice what direction the bow is pointing. The bow points up. I have a bow. I have a compound bow that uh, can hurt if you get shot. And so one of the rules is that it's like a gun. You do not aim it unless you know that it's safe to shoot in that direction. So I'm not going to point my bow at you because uh, that's not safe. And so this bow pointed up to the sky means that it's pointed towards God. What it's trying to say is that God would look at the bow. He would look at it pointed towards him. And he will remember he can't break this covenant. It's a way of saying my life is at stake. 
You can shoot that bow at me if I ever break the covenant. And we know that God's not going to die. So we know what God is saying. I will never break this covenant. But you guys, you know, this is a, this is a metaphor. We know God's sovereign. But God will look down on the earth and he'll say, you guys are really driving me crazy. You guys are really wicked. You guys really deserve right now for another flood to be sent upon you. But there's that bow. That bow is always reminding me. He says, I see the bow and it reminds me of my covenant. It reminds me I can't wipe you guys out because it would cost me my life to break the covenant. We find this promise. This covenant God made with Noah finds its yes in Jesus Christ. You can say in a sense that it does cost God his life to keep his covenant with Noah. Because the Son of God had to come to this earth and add a human nature and take on flesh so that he could bear the wrath of God that all of us sinners deserve. God when he looks at the bow, doesn't just forget about his justice. Yeah, my justice is no big deal. No, God, when he looks down and he sees all our sins, he knows that the flood of his wrath deserves to be poured down upon us for all of our sin. But he looks at the bow and it's like a shield where he stores his wrath back. He keeps it back and he says, okay, I'm not going to pour it out on you right now. He stores it up. He stores it up for the unbeliever so that on that judgment day he will pour out all his wrath upon them in an eternity of hell. But for the believer, he stored it up so that he could unleash the flood of God's wrath upon his son, upon the God-man, Jesus Christ, as he hangs on the cross. And so in that sense, it costs God his life to preserve us and to store up that wrath so that he could then pour it out on someone else, on Jesus, instead of us. And so that's the relevance of the covenant of Noah to you, to me. The only reason that you and I are alive today is because there's a bow pointing up at God. The only reason God has not sent another flood and he's preserved you and he's preserved this world for thousands of years is because of God's unbreakable promise. God brought you here. God gave you life. He sustained you for every day of your life. He's brought you here to this day because he desires for you to come to repentance. He desires for you to not face the flood of God's wrath by an eternity in hell, but to know that Jesus Christ can take that wrath on himself for you. God is patient. He's been very patient towards you. Do not presume on his patience. Don't be a fool and wait another day 
to give your life to following Jesus and trusting in Jesus to save you from your sins. Call upon him to save you. God has preserved you to this day so that you would come to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are full of grace and rich in mercy. We confess our rebellion against you and our guilt before you. Those who have broken your covenant, defied your commands, and that we are worthy of nothing but an eternal punishment. Thank you, God, for your great grace in establishing your covenant. Thank you for Christ fulfilling the promise, defeating Satan. Thank you for the power of, over sin and Satan that we as believers have now in our lives. The promise and the hope of eternal life through Christ. Help us, Lord, not to presume on your patience but to live each day for your glory. And if we have not given our lives to following you, may we do that today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.